I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes. Okay, well, I'm going to up my game this time because I thought my performance last time was below par. It would have got four out of ten in Eric Paler's Sports Gazette ratings. <laughs> I think you, you, might have, you might have been brought off to mute applause from the chicken run. <laughs> and the silent shaking of heads. Yeah, that's right. So, well, that's the last we'll see of him, I said. Well, issue 397 of When Saturday Comes is out at the moment. And as ever, the letters page offers some... Beautiful diversions, including the great topic of Mart Poom. Well, Mart Mart Poom's penis really is probably uh, because he was injured, apparently injured, um, playing for Est- in Estonia against what was described as an Iron Maiden eleven. I noticed the an Iron Maiden eleven, not the Iron Maiden eleven. Was it an, an eleven with X? X. Well, I think it's X one. It's X one. So it's an Iron Maiden eleven. And I didn't remember because Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden is a very keen fencer. A sabreur. So whether he was involved... I thought you meant he was into making fences. No, that would, have been, that would have been better. He did that <laughs> if he had a fencing company. But no, he's, he's a, so, so whether he was involved in the injury, we didn't know. The, the letter writer did speculate on whether Bruce Dickinson was involved in, in Matt's, Matt's unfortunate injury. I always liked Mark Poom because he looked like Pob. Do you remember Pob? It was on Channel 4 in the early 90s, this sort of cartoon character animation thing and it just always reminded me of him and I felt a natural kinship well we, with the picture of him he was wearing those when goalkeepers in those eras everyone wore those incredibly baggy shirts it was amazing he was able to, if he dived anywhere that the wind the, the, the sea of resistance of it didn't wouldn't have kept him away from the ball because the shirts were just so huge weren't like a big t- marquee he was wearing just made goalkeepers look really cold I always thought like a little boy just playing his first game and just <laughs> you'll grow into that you'll grow into that like shirt that. Yeah. it's also a good name isn't it a nice short kind of name mm. that looks like an Anagram. Yeah. Trying to work out what what is that? What is that? 
Tom Pum, Tom Pumi or something, you know. It's an anagram yeah. for penis injury. Yes, well, in this case, yeah. <laughs> and also a few revelations about dugouts and benches. Uh, I'd like to write a point out that uh, managers and cup fans used to sit pretty much next to each other on the long benches they had at Wembley. They'd have the, the, the substitutes sat at the back and managers next to each other. I mentioned Bill, Bill Shankly and Joe Harvey at the cup final in 74. Uh, I hadn't remembered that for a while, but yeah, it was true. So they couldn't have been having many tactical discussions with their... But then they weren't allowed opposite. to, because of course in those days, I remember there used to be a law that there was no coaching from the touchline. That was always said, you can't coach from the touchline, which obviously that must have been repealed at some point, because otherwise the technical area would just involve managers stalking up and well, down, they, they muttering must, they, to they, they, I think they semaphored a lot, and if asked about it, would say they were just remembering a hand jive from That's the their youth. <laughs> I wonder what you were going to say then. <laughs> A hand jive from their youth, something from the rock and roll years, you know, (laughs) or the big the swing band, the swing band era, possibly in the case of Bill Shankly and Joe Harvey. Do you think that they might have they might have had tic tac? They might have known all those. Yeah, I don't think Mark Poom was having any hand jives after his injury. No, No, they're not (laughs) steady on. But (laughs) the idea of (laughs) sorry, hand jives and jarable friends. The idea of other managers hearing your tactical instructions when on the bench has reminded me of this incredible trend of modern footballers covering their mouths all the time, which is just yeah. all levels of the game. I've seen it at games that aren't being televised, as if Albion Rovers are now employing a lip reader or something that'll give away Montrose's tactics. I think it started on Italian TV. They used to, In one of the Italian TV football programmes, they'd do a thing about talking about what the managers were clearly discussing with their players. Then managers, including Capello, did it a lot when he was the England manager, I think. Managers started to cover their mouths as sort of a pragmatic way of dealing with that, and that would spread here as well. Yeah. Well, the, the coaches in the NFL have done it for a long time as well, because yeah. so, you see them, they use their kind of clipboard to talk. But yeah. Some of that, I, th- I suspect, is also because they swear quite a lot, and obviously yeah. the NFL is quite kind of family-oriented. So they're, probably they're just covering up their swearing. Not really tactics, it's just they want to get something off their chest. So There's also a of managers writing things down in bits of paper and showing it to players. I remember somebody wrote in and said that they were sat behind a dugout where Mickey Adams was manager and he'd written, um, I think he was maybe manager of a team that James Scowcroft was playing for, and he'd written what appeared to be Scary Big Diagonal. <laughs> but it was actually Scoey Big Diagonal. Get a big diagonal up to Scoey. He could have said Scary, he would have had probably Back about the, the same effect. Job. Yeah. <laughs> It was a big thing with Tony Pulis, actually, uh, in his uh, reign at Middlesbrough of passing the notes onto the pitch and then a player would then put them in their sock in case an opponent found the... I think they should have eaten them. Should have eaten meat, they swallow that. (laughs) When you read it, memorise it and swallow it. And other letters, uh, one that really got your hackles up. Well, not the letter, but you agreed with the content of the letter. Was a decimal currency? The the decimal currency letter, yes, because there was a a mistake about the, uh, the value of the old... D or penny and how it all fits together and the, the letter writer explained it all and then did say at the end that it's lucky that we you know we'd gone decimal before joining the EU otherwise we might go back to the old 12 pennies to the shilling and 20 shillings to the pound and 21 shillings to the guinea but yes. I mean what would be wrong with that I uh-huh. say and yeah, the return was, of old English spangles that was a letter for the older readers or as we call them the readers <laughs> Andy any 
letters down the years that stick in your mind as being favourites? We've had so many thousands by now. Um, there was one that we thought was somebody. Did, well, people asked us if we'd made it up, and then we did wonder if the person who sent it in was was, it, was doing a satirical one. But I actually, don't think they were. Somebody wrote in and said that Paul Gascoigne's problems. This was a few years ago. Would be sorted out if he only got himself an allotment. You have plenty of time to think. You can do things creatively. It does make a sort of sense. Mm-hmm. It did the way it was phrased. It, I thought it, it was. There's enough about it that suggested it was a sincere letter. Um, we had a letter once from Glenda Jackson, and when she was a Labour MP, replying to somebody had written in to say that the Swedish player Joachim Bjorklund bore a distinct resemblance to Glenda Jackson. So Glenda, to her credit, apparently one of her researchers at the time was a WC reader, wrote back and said, um, amongst other things, I'm reading it here, um, for years I thought my footballing talents were pass and recognised, but now I can hold my head up alongside such greats as Magnus Erlingmark and Joachim Bjorklund, and to think that Tramay wouldn't look at me. <laughs> we also had a letter once from John Peel who um, was uh, waiting for uh, to go into a radio station not Radio 1 but a different radio station and he was having um, problems with the intercom and then uh, uh, I'll take it up from what he says in the letter a vaguely familiar figure approached in a shell suit I was certainly not chosen for myself and decided to tussle with the intercom it doesn't work I told him but he persisted eventually getting the thing to work as he waited for someone to come to the door I tried to put him at his ease with a little undemanding chat well, it turned out he complained about being pestered by a vagrant on the doorstep. So an official came to ask me, in the words of the forces of law and order, to move along. I explained that my name was John Peel and I was waiting for a friend. He said, oh, she said, Graham Kelly, for it was he, thought you were a vagrant. And to think, with a handy, blunt instrument, I could, in a thrice, have done more for English football than I have in a lifetime of support. <laughs> Paul Graham Kelly. In fact, there's a letter about the FA Cup draw in issue 397 and it being on the one show. Graham Kelly is forever linked with the ties will be played on the 4th and 5th of January in my head. And they used to sort of wheel out Bert Millichip as well, yeah. didn't they? You always have the look of someone who would be standing on a May Day parade. Bring back, bring back the balls in a velvet bag. The, the, there that's, was that's, something, that's my catchphrase. Mm, I think oh, that's, that's right it. as well. You can hear them like, clinking. The magical mm. clack. Yeah. Mm. As the, and it was always on that's the a good radio, name for a coffee bar, actually. Magical clack. <laughs> the magical clack. Andy, tell us about some of the contents in issue 397 more generally. Is there a free gift on the front, for instance, this time? I did suggest that once to you years ago. You should have one of those things. You used to be able to get those things that were cardboard, and they you put them inside a book, and it was a joke. And when the person opened the book, yeah. they jumped out and sort of hit you in the face. And I did suggest you should do one with Billy Whitehurst. Oh, right. Or with Mick Harford, who was famously sent on once to sort out Billy Whitehurst. Which gave you an idea of where Mick Harford stood in the pantheon of, <laughs> of handy footballers. Billy Whitehurst, who used to do bare knuckle boxing in the summer. That's that was, right. That was his close season activity. Apparently. There, was a, there was an interview with a guy who was a Sheffield United fan did, that begins, begins with the line Billy Whitehurst says, I could see he was handy, so I've done his knee with a monkey wrench. That, that was his opening, that's the opening line of the interview. Right, so the new issue of WSC, <laughs> moving on from that, uh, our regular match of the month feature is on Ipswich, Ipswich v Oxford. Ipswich's first year in the third division since the time of Alf Ramsey. Alf Ramsey got promoted twice from the third to the first. And it's the, the lowest position since that time. They made a good start, but now heading down to mid-table. Looked as if they are going to go back straight away. Um, but struggling now. Um, got the wealthy, reclusive owner, which, as, as several clubs have discovered, it isn't all it's cracked up to be very often. I think Sunderland have had similar problems recently. A um, bit like Sunderland, in fact, in various ways. Um, 
Prior to that, they had a long spell in Division 2, something like 17 years in Division mm. 2. They've become a bit of a stalwart of Division 2, but I'm sure most Ipswich fans wouldn't mind a bit of that Division 2 ticking over at the moment. Um, it's the 70th anniversary this month of um, Wing Commander Reap discovering Pomo. Or as I've written it, it seems to have written down here porno, but it's actually Pomo. Um, <laughs> if only you had the, the position of The position of maximum opportunity, which again could be <laughs> porno. Um, Wing Commander Reap, Charles Reap, former RAF officer, became a, um, a statistician and influenced the later FA head of coaching, Charles Hughes, who in turn had influence on Graham Taylor. Um, Reap used to... Uh, take notes at games and came up with ideas about the score a goal you know through um, the fewest passes that you needed to do and the various kind of uh, uh, theories to do that the first game he w- at which he developed his ideas Swindon v Bristol Rovers March 1950 um, Division 3 South games it's the 70th anniversary of the start of that um, he was later invited as a, spe- as, as a guest of uh, the Norway England game in 1993 when Norway beat England um, when Egil Olsen, the Norwegian manager, was um, was an, a, 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 a devotee of Reap's methods, and Reap was there as a sort of honoured guest. So a, a bit of a dark chapter, I think, really, in English football. Uh, I yeah, mean, obviously, he, some go- good goals are scored from very few passes, but there's been a lot of terrible football. Well, that was, his, that was his thing. He, he, was, he had done a sort of Optar-style analysis, hadn't he? And that, but he was like, yes, most goals are scored from three or yeah. fewer passes. And, 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 and Stan Cullis was very influenced by him at Wolves, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and they sort of worked on that idea, and also that if you if you hit the ball into the box very hard and low, there was more chance of it basically sort of being deflected in. Yeah, I think it, it wasn't really to got picked up by the FI and became more of a thing on coaching classes. I think which is a lot later on, really. maybe only in the, like the seventies or eighties. I think it became certainly you don't you don't think of it much so much in the sixties. Well, the sixties no, I don't think. And so it, it was an idea ahead of its time. Well, ahead of its time in a way, unfortunately. Um, other things in this issue, local heroes, but players who aren't from the town that they played, where they played, but became associated with one of the, the, the things that's mentioned in the article. Tony Brown, style West Brom, was from Manchester and had been a Man City fan, but was always associated with West Brom. Bobby Charlton, I suppose, fits that he's not mentioned in the article, but fits mm. the bill in the way. Of course, loads of players from the North East, Norman Hunter, who played for Leeds, uh, most of his career, Bob Pace at Liverpool. The, all these players who were lost, sort of a, yeah, generations like, of lost players who could have played for Newcastle and so well, on. Like Colin, Colin Bell as well. Yeah, and because they, all the other clubs had scouts in the in the yeah. area and they, 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 the, the clubs missed out for various reasons on all those players. And I only found out recently that Luigi Riva, famous Italian player, spent all his career with Cagliari, played three World Cups for Italy, one of the great Italian footballers. I assumed he was Sardinian and that was the reason he stayed, but he wasn't, he was from Northern Italy. Just that he played against Cagliari in the youth team, produced him when he was 16, they signed him. And he subsequently um, refused all of the offers to leave, which makes it, in a way, even better that he stayed there. He's that fantastic thing where he, 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 was, he, was, he was sort of put to him at the end of his career because Juventus and people wanted to offer loads of money for him and obviously would have paid him a lot. And they said, you know, if you'd, got, if you'd signed for one of the big clubs, you'd have won far more. And he said, but don't you see winning one title with Calgary is worth winning 10 with anyone else, which yeah. was really lovely. Yeah. 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 I think Janinho probably feels the same way about his League Cup. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other th- other uh, big feature we've got on this issue, um, the Conservatives, what they're going to do now, they're in power in relation to football. Um, article points out majority of Premier League and Championship clubs um, are in Labour voting seats, majority of League One and League Two clubs are, are, are now Tory held seats, and this is the widening of the city town kind of political divide at this election. Um, fan groups want to see the FA get more involved as regulators of clubs and tightening up the fit and proper person test, and they're hoping that government will support this, but there hasn't been any sign of it yet. Um, of course, it was the deregulation in the Thatcher era that helped 
to create a lot of what we've got now with the clubs uh, ending the, the the sharing of gate receipts, becoming PLCs, so they could sidestep rules about speculation and so on, and the biggest clubs creating the Premier League. So the current government hasn't yet talked about the greater distribution of TV money from the Premier League to lower division clubs, and that obviously is something we have to hope is, is exactly the kind of thing that is needed in football and they will actually consider. Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. Harry, what did you write about this time? Um, I, I wrote about my uh, problem with, with hats. Because I found that my, as my hair has hair's gone thinner, sadly, I'm still, you know, still, you know. So it's one of those things. Where when I get my when I got my hair cut the last time I got my hair cut, when I went to pay, they said that's five pound fifty. I said, well, that's funny, it's gone down. It was seven pound fifty last time, and the and the woman who cut my hair said, oh, sorry, you're not over sixty five. Wow. And I and I said no. I was like really indignant. And then someone said, could have got a pint. You could have got a pint in the micropub for two pounds. You could have got a pint for that extra money. So the next time I went to a football match, the guy I went with paid the pensioner rate. And so when I went to pay, they just assumed that I was a pensioner as well. So I, I did I did take that. I didn't go, <laughs> steady on. I'm some way off that yet. But the rail pass will soften the blow in that time. It will. Well, you've got to wait a long time for a bus pass. I'm, I'm longing for that. I'm longing for my bus pass. But I can't get... Anyway, so I write about uh, about problem with hats. Because I, I did used to have a balaclava when I was a boy at... In the in the sixties and you know sort of everyone had wore balaclava kids all wore balaclavas, but it's a bit. So good I, if you had if you had earache, you're supposed to wear a good, balaclava. Very good. They were good for everyone. Like. You couldn't really hear anything through no. them. It's probably quite good when you're in the bob end at Middlesbrough. You hear people grumbling on. Um, but you know, I would like to. I would like to wear a balaclava now. But obviously, they, they've sort of their brand image has been tarnished by terrorists. Somewhat. So instead, I had to wear a strange hat that a friend of a friend of a friend of the magazine and a contributor to the magazine had given me, which has I think has the words in Gaelic for London Scottish. Well, that's what he told me. He probably just says English wanker actually. <laughs> and I noticed I was getting these sort of strange looks, and I thought oh, it's because of this Scottish phrase on it. People are wondering what it all means, you know. But then when I got on the train and saw my reflection, I realised that it just basically made me look like someone who shouldn't be trusted around metal cutlery. I think that was it. It allowed for a reflection on some of the different types of hat, including the lesser spotted cardboard top hat of cup finals of yore. Yes, yeah. the stovepipe hat. Though people always, yeah, people used to make their own headgear for cups, yeah. only for the cup, though, I think. Well, I was pleased that was brought back in a World Cup final. Matarazzi of Italy wore it when Italy, after they'd beaten France in the 20, was it 2010? I can't remember now, 2010 World Cup final. He wore one of those hats last seen on someone in the FA, FA Cup winner in probably in the early 1980s. 2006, I think it was. Andy. Was it 2006? It was in Germany. Yeah. They all merge. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's easy. It's hard yeah. to keep track, especially at my age. Yeah. Weirdly, when we moved house when I was about 10, I remember going up in the loft and finding, this is a house near York, bear in mind, finding a cardboard Bristol Rovers hat on the water tank. <laughs> I just left it in situ. <laughs> One trend that never developed with football fans wearing hat, a good job as well was those um, uh, clapping hats where you pull a string and they clap. You think <laughs> that given that clubs often have clappers now, Leicester are famous yeah, for giving out clappers, so you could give out those clapping hats to people. But 
could be the next piece of supporters club merchandise. Maybe we should give it as a free gift on the front cover. Of one of one those silky caps, I like those. You know, probably you know those sort of silky sort of flat caps that have the club crest on. And that brought back a painful memory for me because I remembered having a Middlesbrough one aged eight or nine, and we used to get autographs and getting the players to sign it. So sort of bending oh. down like that, which is good for yeah, podcast. Yeah. You know, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, like that. And That's having having men good. sign my head. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited yeah. by this nice shiny hat. Going mm. back to the car, it had rained, oh. getting in the car, taking my hat off, and all the signatures had smudged. I've still got the hat with its grubby felt yeah. marks. Funny you thought to take an indelible yeah. ink pen with you. There's oh. sort of one of those ones that you do that you write on DVDs and CDs. It's not the kind of nine year old I was. I'm right. told Alan McInerney, you always used to sign his, uh, if anyone asked him a photo, he'd sign Alan in quotes Rambo. McAnally. and I think the David Seaman. I think Harry. I think David Seaman did a similar thing David where he Seaman. used to he signed things safe hands. And a friend of mine, took, he, he was an Arsenal fan. He got he he bought his book and Seaman was signing the books, and then he took it and gave it to his son. And his son opened it and went, "What's this?" And he went, "Well, David Seaman signed it for him." He goes, "No, it's like safe hands. Anyone could have written that. Because <laughs> anyone could have written David Seaman, really, couldn't they? Just as easily." Tony Mowbray always used to write, "Be lucky." I think I'd write love ya. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to do your squad number now because I still get autographs with my little girl and they all put their squad number underneath the Uh, roster, which is just as well, quite frankly. Harry, if you could just twist the wheel of our random topic generator there. Do I spin a good it, thrust? Do I spin it clockwise or anti-clockwise? It's up to you. It depends what kind of man you I'm are. I'm going to go anti-clockwise. Here we go. Oh, what Ooh. fast hands you've got. <laughs> it's slowing down. Frank Spraggan, Bradford Park Avenue, corner flags, and it's landed on footballers' hobbies. Oh, give me some unusual player hobbies, Andy. Well, Sergei Rebrov. I knew someone who worked as a translator at Tottenham when Rebrov was playing there. And Rubbov, um, this is a, a little bit known about him, but there are more details, was a, a, a ham radio enthusiast and still is. We had a big transmitter installed in his back garden when he was playing for Spurs. So Neighbours TV was starting to get interrupted by bursts of Russian as Sergei would be calling people in Murmansk or Novi Sibirsk. And another Neighbours burglar alarm kept going off and they didn't realise for a while, but it was something to do with his, with his transmitter, so he eventually prevailed upon to stop. Um, after doing considerable damage, but he is apparently now still a major Radio Ham enthusiast. I'm kind of pleased that Radio Ham thing still goes on. It's the kind of thing you would imagine the internet would have, if not killed off, then certainly had a major effect on. But, but I guess someone was pointing out the other day that if you're in a sports centre, they all have walkie-talkies. Why do you need a walkie-talkie in the age of the mobile phone? Why are people going? Boy, baby, baby. I have to admit, I had to look up Ham Radio. Yeah. As a phrase. It's a I famous Tony Hancock sketch. That's why we know it. We all know it from yeah. Tony Hancock. Friends yeah. friends all over the world, yeah. not in this country, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the subject of communication, of course, lots of, well, a few footballers also have been pigeon fanciers. Jerry Francis, the best-known one of all, but also uh, Duncan Ferguson and, I think, Mirandinha, Brazilian uh, at Newcastle, the, the first Brazilian to play any football. He's not from Argentina. It certainly had uh, kept pigeons or some sort of competitive um, so birds of he, some kind. Uh, Going back to that letter, if only he'd got Gaza involved while they were together at Newcastle. I'm surprised no. that Gaza wasn't involved mm. with pigeons, actually. I mean, Duncan Ferguson, because there is, an, I'm sure, an apocryphal story, it possibly originates from Ali McCoyce, that when he signed for Newcastle from Everton, when he moved into his new house, he bought his pigeon loft with him, and he let his pigeons out, and then waited for them to come back and wondered where they'd gone, <laughs> and of course they'd flown back to Liverpool. Uh. 
but I think if he was actually did know a lot about pigeons, so I don't think that Duncan Ferguson would have done that. Jerry Francis, yes, was it? He was actually quite a famous uh, pigeon yeah. fancier, and I, I have read an article in a pigeon. Uh, homing pigeon magazine about Jerry Francis and I can tell you that in the 70s when he was at his peak he was racing pigeons quite successfully and his star bird was a blue checker cock named Lucky Stumpy <laughs> sort of feeling he's probably named after one of his teammates um, uh, Charlie Dickinson all time top goal scorer for Dunfermline was also one of the champion pigeon racers of, in Scotland well, I mean, the other thing, of course, is fishing, which which Gazza was, you know, he was a keen fisherman. Yeah, and, Sometimes um, I actually saw him on the tower near my house. Um, Isaias, Brazilian player, briefly at Coventry. He played for Benfica and scored for them when they beat Arsenal and knocked Arsenal out of the then European Cup of the early 90s. He's already about 32 by then. He's bought by Ron Atkinson. Hardly played for Coventry for the two years he was there. First Brazilian and in the Premier League. I think so. And his interpreter later said they mostly just went fishing. <laughs> <laughs> So at least he was happy enough in a day-to-day well, basis. Say, Van Seaman loved a rod. He like well, as we as we heard about his injury in a in an earlier in a, a previous podcast, injured his shoulder landing a carp because carps are carp have got incredibly big because of genetic uh, modification and have got larger and larger, and actually are being they they are doing gene splicing with them where they're splicing cattle genes into them to make them bigger <laughs> not in this country but carp have been, it's actually illegal to import these it's illegal to import carp into Britain but some are being smuggled in these huge cow carps is this a public health warning this podcast well, you know, is doubling that's right you know well just watch out you know if, if you see a carp with horns <laughs> but they, I think the greatest of all um, football fishermen is horse trubesh the header beast as he was known and the, mon- the monster the monster and the header beast and who played? A, I think did he play up front with Kevin Keegan? Yes, he did. A bit of a little, and, a, a little and large sort of. But a duo. little, a little and very large. A smash and grab. Mighty Mouse and yeah. the Monster. Yeah, that's like a that's a that's a nineteen seventies buddy film with Burt Reynolds. <laughs> or a reggae single on Trojan. <laughs> Indeed, and he but <laughs> horse Rubesh uh, did write a couple of books. A best-selling book on fly fishing. And another one on, um, I think, on sea fishing. And actually, if you put his name in it and you look on the pictures, there's actually more pictures of him cradling vast fish than there are actually scoring goals, which he did score quite a lot. Well, Bob Paisley famously didn't want his Liverpool players to play other sports. He wasn't keen on them playing. So I don't know where he stood on fishing. Though. Maybe that, Is that a safe enough? It must be. He'd, oh, he didn't want to play in case they got injured. Yeah, he wasn't keen on them playing golf, for example. Which reminds me, David Seaman, uh, somebody was... Uh, wrote in once I think that they saw a pro-am tournament that David Seaman was playing and every time he took a tee shot he said bloody hell that went a long way <laughs> and he said that every, after every hole he said, it's wearing down a bit now David you know, I didn't have to go that far <laughs> you can cover anything with his lovely <laughs> <laughs> he's the bluff Yorkshireman the, bl- the big bluff Yorkshireman as Brian Moore always used to call him <laughs> What about footballers dabbling in music? I think of Norberto Solano's trumpet, wheeled out for many football focus items and other such things. Also owned a Peruvian restaurant in Newcastle. He did own a Peruvian restaurant. He did actually play quite a very sort of plaintively at Bobby Robson's funeral as well, actually. He is a very good trumpet player. The same could not be said of um, Rudd Hullett's uh, reggae career. No. Which, they were, he did have hit singles in Holland, I think, but yeah, they're not they're not great. They're not great. The other thing is tropical fish. We did mention that on a previous podcast, Stephen Ireland's huge fish tank. But Sammy and Nasri also had a massive, something like three thousand litre sea aquarium in his house. Just sort of extraordinary. 
mysterious link between footballers and fish. Footballers yeah. and fish. I, in fact, now you say that, I remember that they were on a Monty Python record. There was a thing of goalkeepers reciting poems about fish, and then it would say, and uh, one of them said something like Gary Spray, and then it would say, Gary Spray, Leeds United. What is it? Why are football? Why are goalkeepers so fascinated by fish? Um, Tony Pulis, who's in danger of Kevin Keegan levels of exposure in this podcast, I was amazed to find out that he has this obsession with Napoleon. Again, just a few weeks ago, for the second year in a row, he was on Corsica at the annual Napoleon commemoration service. So he's sort of a Napoleon supporter. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's his but team wonder, now. Well, Sir Alex Ferguson is apparently he's a, he's a, a, a big student of the Kennedy assassination and has all these books and has all the original. Yeah, the sort of what was the the Warren report or whatever yeah. it is. He has all that by his bedside. Um, you know, if only he'd listened to Tony Gubber, I say, as we mentioned on a previous podcast. And you'll have to become a Patreon subscriber to hear that red-hot Gubber material. But, yeah, but, you know, Tony Gubber would have put him straight. And Bill Shankly was really interested in the Chicago gangster era, I think. And he, he, he the Liverpool squad at 74 World Cup, which I think we also... 74 FA Cup, which we mentioned in the previous podcast, they were dressed in these kind of red... Uh, red Shirts with kind of black ties or something, oh, which looked yes. a bit. Well, he had that sort of Cagney, uh, Jimmy Cagney sort of look, yeah. didn't he, Bill, uh, Bill Shankly? And you can sort of see that because it was very popular. Because Huey Gallagher also um, sort of modelled himself a bit on James Cagney in his person, in basically every way, in personal way and on the pitch and everything. But in his clothes, you know, often the pictures of him in the when he was at Newcastle in the late twenties, he does look, you know, he's all sort of dressed up like a bit of a gangster. In more recent years, Manuel Almunia, while second string to Jens Lehmann, developed an obsession with World War Two. I'm not saying the two things are linked or anything like that, <laughs> and uh, very much enjoyed touring war museums, battlefields, and all the rest. In one interview expressed his deep desire, ambition to go to the Household Cavalry Museum that was one thing he wanted to do of a training break and also said that the Champions League was great because he got to go and visit various World War II sites during away games again I don't know if that's linked to Jens Lehmann or not <laughs> There was also cause, well I didn't know this until very recently uh, Simon Agdestein who was a double international for Norway at football and chess he played uh, football for Norway in the kind of early 90s but his career ended due to a knee injury but he's since represented Norway at the Chess Olympiad. Ah, well, I can think of an... I've now, that's popped into my mind, another double international. Andrew Wingy Wilson, Scotland international footballer. Was player. he a winger? No, he wasn't a oh. winger. No, what, no wait, cool. you know. A deceptive, a deceptive <laughs> winger. Then. He had wings. He no, actually he, had, he didn't have wings. He had lost He'd lost part of his arm in the First World War. The opposite the, to wings. Yeah, <laughs> so that's why he was called Wingy, because he, uh, he, he'd, oh, he'd been winged. He'd been winged. He'd been winged, so he was known as Wingy Wilson, but he played for Middlesbrough and Chelsea, I think. And he was also a Bulls international for Scotland. There's a player of that era whose nickname was Sailor. I don't know, Arthur Sailor Capes. <laughs> Maybe he I was a bit of Sailor. Possibly, oh. a bit, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he had a lot of fish. <laughs> Players with other sporting prowess. Dennis Compton mentioned earlier, a nice topical... That's football. right. Well, you know, there were a lot. There were a lot of loads of football and cricketers. Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 because even Jeff, I mean, Jeff Hurst played a first-class game for yes, Essex, but, yeah. and I was just, I was just reading the Night Watchman last night. Another, uh, you know, almost like a sister publication to when something comes about cricket, and it was that there was a thing about um, the minor counties in the, in the NatWest Trophy, and Shropshire defeated Yorkshire. Uh, with Steve Grizovich leading their attack, the Coventry goalkeeper of in, in legendary handsomeness. <laughs> Excellent clown hair. Curtis Woodhouse recently dabbled with boxing, but I noticed has been tempted back into football by the lure of 
Gainsborough Trinity, I think it is. But there's been a few football, there's a few people who are tempted by boxing, but actually when they start, they're quite Once hard, they hit. They're quite hard as a, a boxer. They're quite tough as a cricketer or a footballer or anything else. But when they go in a boxing ring and get hit by a boxer, they quickly change their mind. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like more, please consider becoming a member of the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon. From just $2 a month, which is around £1.55, I feel I need an economic comparison there, 155 penny sweets, perhaps, you'll get access to bonus episodes and material plus exclusive merchandise. Find out more by heading to patreon.com slash Comes. It's time for Record Breakers, the part of the podcast where each of us chooses a football song from the wondrous website football45.com. Harry, what have you chosen this time? Well, well I've gone for Manny De Libero. Um, we were talking in a previous podcast about um, TV programmes with a football theme, children's TV programmes, and uh, Nick H on Twitter did say that he was he was thr- he said he was absolutely thrilled <laughs> by my mention of Hero to Zero starring Michael Owen. Um, so that was nice, thank you. And, uh, but this is Manny Del Libro is a German um, uh, a program starring the teenage heartthrob Tommy Warner, who kind of looks like a cross between David Cassidy and David O'Leary. And the track is a bit—it's a bit sort of like 99 Red Balloons, Kings, Kids in America. And I'm sure you'd be delighted to know that Tommy Warner went on to star as an adult in the uh, in the hit German soap opera Verboden Liebe, um, Forbidden Love. Filmed on location in Dusseldorf in Mallorca and based on the Australian soap opera Sons and Daughters. <laughs> there you go. Andy, what did you choose this time? Well, I'm going for Kude Nish by Trio Palilula, which is about Radnitsky Nish, um, team in the then Yugoslavia. This is 1982 when they got to the uh, semi-finals of uh, the UEFA Cup that year. In the period when a lot of Eastern European teams often had one a one-off good season. Vidyaton of Hungary got to the final in 85, knocked out Man United but lost to Real Madrid. And this is something that's now been a bit lost in kind of modern European international club football. I think the um, not obscure but kind of a relatively modest Eastern European club doing well in Europe. We don't really see it anymore. And this is just quite a nice tune, I think. choice this time is the boys in blue record for Oldham Athletics League Cup final defeat to Nottingham Forest in 1990 featuring Cannon and Ball who've found Christianity in real life not in the song 
I know, and unlikely. I didn't see that coming. No, you wouldn't have done, would you? Tommy Cannon later involved in Rochdale, or involved in Rochdale around the time of this record, not uh, not something that would have been popular with Oldham fans, I wouldn't have thought. Well, interestingly, the sleeve features a prominent advert for Salk LTD of Sherwood Business Park Rochdale. Domestic and commercial fence contractors ring today for a quotation on Rochdale 356536, which you didn't get on Erasure Records at the time. That's true. I don't know why. have some listener letters then Tristan Browning writes dear podcast do you or anyone you know regularly see footballers in a non-footballing setting are they neighbours do they shop in the same supermarket or maybe they have kids at the same school as yours are they decent folk or do they have ideas above their station that's probably three questions but I'll begin with ever see footballers in real life on a regular basis very rarely actually where I live in the, in the, in the agricultural land now no, I, don't, I never don't see them but I, someone was telling me the other day funny enough a, a good story she was a, she's a sort of Dutch Italian, and her and her mum moved into an apartment in Amsterdam um, in the sort of nineties. And her mum, the sink wasn't working, so her mum went down to find the janitor. Found this man who, by his sort of general sort of disreputable appearance, she, she an age she assumed was the janitor, asked him to come and fix the sink, and he said no, he couldn't because actually he was just another tenant in the apartment block. And then a couple of days later, her and her daughter were sort of walking through the, the foyer of the apartment block and saw this man and, and she said, oh, I'm really embarrassed because I thought that man was the janitor. And her daughter looked up and said, how could you think that was the janitor? That's Johan Cruyff. Oh. Quite a big mistake to make, really. It's incredible. <laughs> In Amsterdam. Tristan writes that as a kid growing up on the Wirral, a classmate of mine lived next door to then Liverpool striker David Johnson. We were regaled daily by tales of how our schoolmate chatted to David over the fence, bumped into him after school, etc., well, something that Tristan would have been impressed by, I know he's a Tranmere fan, is that the daughter of Johnny King, who was a Tranmere manager at the time, went to my school. But they didn't have a girls' football team at the time, so Johnny himself never turned up to sort of cheer his kid on or anything like that. She may have been a great footballer, possibly one lost to, uh, lost to English football history because of that. Um, well, I, we used to have a, a series in WSC called Brief Encounters, where we asked people to write in with stories of um, unusual sort of encounters with footballers. And I, I was going to read out a few. Um, one was somebody saying, my mate Tim castrated Robbie Fowler's dog. <laughs> then the ads, Tim's a vet, by the way, <laughs> in case there's any confusion over that. Uh, another vet, one Spanish reader wrote in and said, uh, Juan Antonio Pizzi, an Argentinian player who's then a strike with Barcelona, um, brought his dog into a vet's. And uh, the friend of the person who wrote into us, who worked at the, at the vet's, and he wanted to have his dog treated. So she said to him, What's the name? And he said, Pitts. And she said, no, not your name, not the dogs. (laughs) Um, Somebody said, the first time I ever met John Anderson, ex-Newcastle player, he's sitting my dad's local in Heading on the Wall. Needing to clear his throat, he spat loudly into the fire, but it was an electric one with a fake glowing log cover. Sitting there, I watched the sizzling phlegm of the man I'd idolised from the Gallagate and realised that my love affair with the magpies was over. (laughs) Another Newcastle one, Malcolm MacDonald used to play bridge with my dad. Um, Supermac always wore beige, beige shoes, beige beige pants, beige shirts, and most appallingly, 
beige-tinted sunglasses. He always drank gin and tonic, smoked, smoked small, stinky cigars, and, according to my dad, was crap at bridge. <laughs> that's exactly what we wanted to know. I did know, yeah, I sort of I feel like you knew that was coming. Was it, but you can imagine him playing, you know, bridge with Omar Sharif, you know, the other famous... <laughs> and saying through his through the cigar, oh, messed up that hand again, sorry. Sorry, <laughs> Omar. Yeah. I think uh, Malcolm MacDonald was guilty of making me drunk for the first time. Again, autograph hunting outside Ayrson Park. My dad ushered me towards him to get the well-refreshed Malcolm's autograph as he came out of the hospitality at Middlesbrough. And I just remember this almighty stench, the like of which I'd never encountered before, except when my granddad was a bit rat-arsed at Christmas and it having a visible effect on me as a tottered away, drunk by osmosis. <laughs> drunk by the breath of Malcolm MacDonald. <laughs> You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcasts app, or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you, and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.